This is Kick-Ass News. I'm Ben Mathis. Hey, folks. Ben Mathis here with a couple important announcements. You know that we have great advertisers that support the show and keep it free for you to listen. And one of the reasons why advertisers love Kick-Ass News is that they know the show has amazing listeners. Right now, we have a survey that I'd like you to take to help us learn more about our audience. Just go to podsurvey.com kick. The survey will only take five minutes. We're going to ask you some questions about yourself and what you like to buy, but it's completely anonymous, and your answers will help us find advertisers that are well-matched to you, your interests, and the show. And as a way of saying thank you, when you're finished, you can enter a monthly drawing to win a $100 Amazon gift card. Even if you've taken our podcast listener survey before, I'd like to ask you to take this one and help support the show. It'll be a big help to me, and don't forget that you have a chance to win that $100 Amazon gift card. Once again, that's podsurvey.com slash kick. That's K-I-C-K. Thanks for helping us find the best advertisers so that we can keep the show free. Also, the holidays are upon us, and if you're like me, you'll skip the madness of the stores and do most of your shopping on Amazon this year. And if you're going to be doing that anyway, then help support the show by going to the sponsor page on our website at kickassnews.com and copying and pasting the Amazon link there into your web browser before you start ordering. Then Amazon will toss us a little something for every purchase you make this holiday season. You have to shop for gifts anyways. They've got just about everything you can imagine on Amazon delivered right to your door. It won't cost you anything extra, and you can help support the show. So it's kind of like giving two gifts for the price of one this year. And that, my friends, is what you call a Christmas miracle. So again, go to the sponsor page at kickassnews.com and copy our Amazon link into your web browser before you start shopping. And if you feel extra generous this Christmas, then make a donation to keep us going over here at gofundme.com slash kickassnews. Thanks for listening and enjoy the podcast. You know what? Conservatives have never liked John Boehner. That's why they punished him by making him Speaker of the House for four years. But <laughs> you know who they love? Paul Ryan. Sure, he was the co-author of the new budget agreement, but come on, Tea Party darling, former VP candidate, all wrapped up in the boyish good looks of a summer camp youth minister, a golden child whose fiscal genius will lead us to the promised land where Reagan will rise once more. <laughs> and he will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead. Although really for the dead, they're already dead, so what's the... <laughs> It's really for the living. The dead, it doesn't do them. My point is this. For almost 17 years, The Daily Show with Jon Stewart brilliantly redefined the borders between television comedy, political satire, and opinionated news coverage. The Daily Show highlighted the hypocrisies of the powerful in Washington and the media. It garnered 23 Emmys, and it launched the careers of some of today's most significant comedians, including Steve Carell, Samantha Bee, Stephen Colbert, John Oliver, Louis Black, Jessica Williams, Rob Riggle, Ed Helms, John Hodgman, Rob Corddry, Larry Wilmore, and of course the current host, Trevor Noah.
Now the show's behind-the-scenes gags, controversies, and camaraderie has been chronicled by the players themselves, from legendary host John Stewart to the star cast members and writers, plus some of the Daily Show's most prominent guests and adversaries, like John and Cindy McCain, Glenn Beck, Tucker Carlson, and many more. It's all in a new book called The Daily Show, an oral history as told by John Stewart, the correspondents, staff, and guests. And today, I'll talk with the author, Chris Smith. Chris Smith is a contributing editor at New York Magazine, where he's covered politics, sports, and entertainment. Today, he'll talk about how The Daily Show rose from a scrappy jester on basic cable to a sharp critique of the newly emerging 24-hour political news channels, becoming part of the beating heart of politics and a trusted source not only for comedy, but also for commentary, with a reputation for calling bullshit and an ability to affect real change in the world. He'll talk about how Jon Stewart changed the show and started punching up at powerful politicians and TV journalists. He'll discuss how the field reporters, like Stephen Colbert, staged interviews so as to give the guests the impression that they were on a straight news program, not a satire of the news. He'll discuss the weirdly symbiotic relationship between Fox News and The Daily Show. He'll talk about Jon Stewart's legendary scraps with conservative pundits like Bill O'Reilly and Tucker Carlson. And he'll talk about the creepy off-the-record sit-down that Jon Stewart once had with Fox News founder Roger Ailes. He'll also talk about some of the behind-the-scenes machinations and occasional drama, as well as the unsung heroes off-camera who helped make The Daily Show what it is. He'll discuss the influence The Daily Show had on Washington and pop culture and how the show inspired activists overseas to use satire to attack the hypocrisy and injustice of some of the world's most oppressive governments. He'll reveal how Stephen Colbert morphed into a right-wing pundit, which Daily Show alum was Jon Stewart's original hand-picked replacement, and how Comedy Central lost that star to another network. Plus, how sick is Jon Stewart of everyone asking, don't you wish you'd stuck around for the 2017 election? Coming up with Chris Smith of New York Magazine in just a moment. Chris Smith is a contributing editor at New York Magazine, where he's covered politics, sports, and entertainment. He's written a new book called The Daily Show, in parentheses, The Book, an oral history as told by Jon Stewart, the correspondents, staff, and guests. Chris, thanks for joining me. Thank you for having me. I, I need to digress for a second, though it does relate to the book in a, in a strange way. I'm really glad you, you wanted to have me on because about a month ago, I was speaking to a high school class, really good high school beacon in Manhattan about uh, the campaign and media. And one of the things I was talking about is everybody says, oh, the media this, the media that. Well, when it comes to politics, what is the media anymore? And I said, you know, we can agree on the New York Times, right, and the Washington Post and things like that. But what about, for instance, kick-ass news? I mean, here's uh, You referenced this specifically? The world. 
world. Yeah. Shut and, up. You know, he'll have Carol Burnett, but he'll have Dana Perino and a lot of other smart political folks. And so uh, the changes in the media political world, you know, you're a big part of it. John Stewart was for quite a while. And so that's how I'm connecting the dots. Well, wow. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, thank you. I really appreciate the plug. I didn't know we had yeah. a lot of high schoolers listening, but hopefully now we do. Well, maybe, a few, maybe a few more now. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I loved the book. Uh, how did this come about? Did you approach John and the gang or did they reach out to you? Because everyone seems to have been very enthusiastic about participating in this book. Yeah. Uh, well, I wrote what I believe to be the first major magazine feature story, if not the first magazine story, about Jon Stewart in 1993 when he had a short-lived talk show on MTV. And we got along. Uh, we kept in touch. I wrote several cover stories about John and The Daily Show when The Daily Show became a big deal. And when John decided he was going to leave, uh, he came to me, actually, and said, hey, I'm interested in doing a book. Would you be interested in writing? And, you know, it, it was lucky in some respects, but it was also born of having reported on the show over a period of a bunch of years. Yeah. And like I said, it's such a fun read and you get everyone. I mean, not just the people who worked on the show, but, you know, everyone from John McCain, to you name it, came on board this project. It's yeah. told through all these interviews from people who are involved and you get all kinds of different points of view. And at times there's sort of a he said, she said quality to it. And at times it also feels a little like the show itself in that. Wow, that's a hell of a compliment. Thank well, you. Yeah, and I mean it because at times, I have to say, I felt like there was a joke that I wasn't quite sure if I was in on or not. <laughs> How much of this book was a, maybe a little bit tongue-in-cheek? Uh, nah, not so much. Okay. I will say this. I will say this, that daily, you know, I'm, I was making a half dozen phone calls and interviewing a half dozen people affiliated with the show, correspondents, writers, producers. And for the better part of nine months, I was reminded every day how not funny I am. Uh, <laughs> because, you know, even a lot of the off-camera people whose names you don't recognize who've worked for the show over the years are, are pretty damn smart and funny. You mentioned a minute ago, you know, it looked like everybody participated, and that's true with a couple of exceptions. And the key was, you know, once uh, John was on board, everybody by and large was eager to talk. And that's partly because, you know, John uh, signed off on it, but also because the show was such a grind day in, day out that they didn't spend a whole lot of time talking about how the show was made or what they thought the show's impact in the world was. You know, Stephen Colbert or Jessica Williams or Ed Helms would certainly do interviews over the years. But like you say, the backstory of how the show got made, who got along, who didn't, um, that was pretty closely held, not out of secrecy, but out of sort of protectiveness. And the other thing, I, I, I'm glad it came across that I really wanted to open up the book 
to people who'd been targets of the show, you know, the Kane and, and Glenn Beck and yeah. Dave Axelrod and uh, get their perspective on, on what that felt like, you know, what in retrospect they show, thought was good or bad, not just about their participation in the show, but about the show's role in the political media landscape. Because that, I, you know, in my opinion, that's what elevated the Daily Show in the Jon Stewart years. Not simply that it was funny, which was hard enough to pull off, but that it became a, a, a player in the political world. Yeah, and many of us don't remember the Daily Show pre-Jon Stewart. When Craig Kilburn was the host before he left uh, to do, uh, I guess, what was it, the Late Late Show? Late Late Show after Letterman, right. Yeah, what was the Daily Show back then? Well, uh, it was, uh, you know, a fairly scrappy, bare-bones operation. Um, Kilborn was the original host when Comedy Central launched it in 1996. And they laid the, the good foundations of what was to come, that it was going to be a parody of a news broadcast, you know, that it would have mock correspondence, um, that it would have some interviews in the studio. The, the tone of the show was considerably different. You know, it, it was more aimed at local news broadcasts and, and a lot more celebrity content and punched down in ways, you know, would in field pieces make fun of eccentrics. There was a, you know, piece about a guy who replaced his teeth with driveway gravel, you know, <laughs> <laughs> Not the kind of thing John Stewart was interested in. Kilborn left, went to CBS. The show was starting to get some attention, get some traction. Um, John comes in and he wanted it. He didn't. He didn't have a master plan exactly. He didn't have a, a detailed blueprint, but he knew he wanted to make it more relevant to the things he which he was interested in, which were politics and media, that he wanted to punch up in his phrase at people who had power. I want to talk about the process because that was really interesting to me. The field reporter division, that right. was kind of this amazing factory of talent. I mean, Steve Carell, Stephen Colbert, Rob Riggle, Samantha Bee, Rob Corddry. So John many great, Oliver. yeah, so many great talents came out of that. And you talk about it was kind of the redheaded stepchild of the <laughs> show and this pirate squad that could get away with more. In the early days before the show blew up and everyone was in on the joke. They talk about in the book how there was a specific way they would set up their field interviews so as to not necessarily trick the subject, but at least allow interviewees to assume that it was a serious news show. How did they yeah. pull that off? Uh, well, Stephen Colbert talks about it in some detail that you never lied to people, but you yeah. avoided saying you're on the show was on Comedy Central, you know. <laughs> So if somebody asked, well, where is this going to air? Uh, you know, Colbert would say, well, it's, you know, channel 321 in New York. I don't know what it is on your cable system. <laughs> so they would dance around it. They wouldn't, uh, you know, lie if asked a direct question. Yeah, you know, that kind of pose went away pretty quickly after, you know, 2000, 2001. Yeah. The show was getting a lot more publicity and traction. And one of the fascinating things to me is, you know, Colbert talked about it, Ed Helms talked about it, and it's still true. You know, everybody knows the game that the Daily Show field pieces are playing. 
but uh, in Colbert's words, when you put a camera in front of a lot of people, they get a lobotomy. <laughs> people are just so eager to be on television, they really don't care. And the other thing is, too, that as the show became uh, better known, a lot of its better, more interesting interviews came with people who were convinced, even though they were on the totally opposite side of the political spectrum, that they were going to outsmart The Daily Show, that they were going to get their point of view across, and they didn't care that it was a liberal show. So that's fine. And The Daily Show basically let folks have their say. Um, there's an interesting, I think, interview with a longtime field producer named Tim Greenberg, who tries to answer the complaint that, you know, they took interview subjects out of context. Right. And he said, no, that's not true, because we wanted people voicing their belief and their opinion, you know, genuinely. And if if what we wanted were canned uh, set up lines, we would have just hired actors, you know, so there was no need to take people out of context. It was all about getting people to, to say what they really thought. And it wasn't so much one of those shows that was written as much as it was rewritten. You say that there was this room off stage known as the rewrite room. And after every rehearsal before the taping, which is really not a lot of time, that's where the show really came together. Who was in that room and what was that process like? Was it chaotic? Um, no, I mean, it got more of a routine over the years. It was a John Stewart innovation. They had the rehearsal with an empty studio, you know, just a handful of crew and producers uh, at four o'clock every day. And that took about an hour. And then they knew they had to tape at six o'clock. So John and the two or three executive producers would go into this small windowless room with a script supervisor who, you know, had the, had the script on the laptop and a ton of work had gone into writing the script at that point. I mean, there was a dozen writers, field producers, you know, so the, the script at that point was hardly a, a slipshod thing, but, and I got to witness this and tried to describe it. I hope it comes across, you know, the, the show we all saw on TV every night was polished. It had, you know, the video clips, it had the correspondence, but in some ways that hour in the rewrite room, the windowless room where John was essentially performing the show as a solo act and rewriting it on the fly was in many ways a, a more fascinating performance. <laughs> so it, he would call in the individual writers of each segment um, and bounce ideas off them. Uh, over the years, you know, as the technology evolved, they would have headsets on the executive producers. They'd call upstairs to what they called gangs of writers. You know, two or three of them would get together and and come up with new lines to replace jokes that John didn't like. They'd call down the hallway on the headsets to the video clip library because John had an inspiration for a clip about, I don't know, you know, uh, uh, the Rocky, you know, the Colorado Rockies uh, and a Coors beer ad somehow fit into a story about Mitch McConnell. Um, and it was on the fly, you know, the studio is filling up with the audience. You can't keep them waiting for long. 
and from top to do- top to bottom, John is rewriting the script. Now this created some friction because yeah. you know the writers had spent all day, if not days, in advance coming up with good jokes by and large, and John, uh, you know, it varied from day to day. You know, would re- rewrite anywhere from fifty to ninety percent of the script. And, you know, I quote several writers in the book who are very talented people saying, you know, this was hard to take at times seeing your words torn up. But the end result, 99 times out of 100 was better. And they had to admit that. Yeah, yeah, that was interesting how they all said they couldn't argue with the end product. And one of the things that I think distinguished it was, you know, I remember uh, like Bill Maher or I remember Michael Moore you know, initially they started out as being funny and they gradually lost that the more political they became. John right. never sacrificed the comedy for the politics. Even if you disagreed with him, you couldn't deny that the guy was funny. And it was almost a great way of meeting the audience where they're at instead yeah. of being preachy and lecturing. Yeah. And this is, that's, a, that's a really good point. And he did, and the show as a whole, you know, prize the joke above all else. But John really took responsibility for the substance of what they were doing. You know, the the point he thought of satire was to attack things that were real. And there's a guy uh, who's been at the show from the very beginning, is still there, the head researcher, a guy named Adam Chodikoff, who's just a brilliant, scary, smart guy, who says that he wants on his tombstone, you know, the jokes don't matter if the facts are wrong. <laughs> and that really, you know, that was really the ethos of the show. A woman named Liz Winstead, who was one of the co-creators yeah. of the original show, um, says it in the book, I think, in a really interesting way. She said that, you know, John didn't intentionally do this he didn't set out to do this but his his character so to speak behind the desk the the anchor became in many ways the voice of the audience you know saying things the audience wished it was articulate enough or funny enough to say but also key to what you're what you're talking about in contrast to bill maher or michael moore or even to an extent dennis miller um, is that, you know, John, one of his core principles was that the show never become too activist, that it never be openly advocating vote for this guy or, you know, protest yeah. this issue. Now, there are a couple of exceptions to that as well. Um, John went in heavy in uh, defense of as a, as a advocate for uh, veterans. You know, mm-hmm. uh, during the right. Obama years in particular, he really did a bunch of hard hitting pieces about how screwed up the bureaucracy was at the Veterans Administration. And then more famously in 2010 and 2015, he pushed hard for the Zadroga Act, which uh, covers the medical expenses of September 11 first responders. And John, you know, really turned a a spotlight on some of the senators in particular who were standing in the way of that and shamed them into getting on board. Was there ever a turning point when John and the others realized this is way more than comedy? We actually have 
some political capital that we can spend here. Yeah, uh, it's a paradox. They were certainly aware that they were paid attention to in D.C., um, you know, in the Bush years, you know, as the voice of the opposition, in the Obama years, as the voice of disgruntled liberals. <laughs> they never uh, overestimated their minor amount of power. And it's one of the things I think that kept the show healthy over the years is, you know, they they reminded themselves constantly they were a basic cable show with a maximum audience of about three million people. And that once they stepped out of that box, you know, once they they became advocates, the show would get a whole lot less funny. Well, a lot of folks in the book talk about the uh, rally to restore right. fear and or sanity <laughs> and how much a lot of them hated it because it just made a whole lot more work for everybody right. on the staff. But on the other level, because it, it got them out of their premise, you know, that yeah. they were just a comedy show or, you know, they were mostly a comedy show in a studio. They weren't yeah. asking their audience to do anything really. Right. And, uh, right. and what was it, so what was it intended to accomplish? I suppose also was probably some, some yeah. of the hesitation. Yeah. So a lot of them, you know, agreed with the, the sentiment of it that, you know, politics and the media could use a whole lot more civility. Um, but they didn't like the, you know, go down to the mall in Washington and hold a rally idea. of it. But also their ratings skyrocketed after that. So yeah. it actually be, it ended up yeah. being a great publicity stunt for the show. Yeah, no doubt. Um, they all are in show business. They all recognize that. Uh, to, you know, 2010 can seem like ancient history as fast as the world moves. But, you know, that was a period where Obama was new in office. The Republicans were shutting down government. And uh, the midterm elections were right around the corner. It was it was peak Daily Show in a bunch of ways. We're going to take a quick break, and then I'll be back to talk more about The Daily Show with Chris Smith of New York Magazine when we come back in just a minute. If you're enjoying my conversation today, or if you're just a fan of The Daily Show, you should check out The Daily Show. An Oral History as Told by John Stewart, The Correspondents, Staff, and Guests, by my guest today, Chris Smith, with a Ford by John Stewart. And right now, you can download the audio version of his book for free with a special promotion just for our listeners from audible.com. Just go to audibletrial.com slash kickassnews for a free 30-day trial and a free audiobook download which can be The Daily Show, An Oral History by Chris Smith, or any of Audible's 180,000 titles. That's audibletrial.com slash kickassnews. Or click on the sponsor link on our webpage to download the free audiobook of your choice. And now, back to the show. He liked to take on political hypocrisy in Washington and the media itself. Now, he took the desk right about around the time that Fox News and MSNBC both launched, I think within months of that. Could there have been a Daily Show or would it have been what it became 
if there hadn't been a Fox News? That's a terrific question. Uh, it would have been a lot weaker or a much different animal. There's, there's no separating the two. And, you know, uh, you could say it's lucky for The Daily Show that Fox News came along when it did. You know, whether Fox News is good or bad for the country, we, we can debate <laughs> Um, but you're right. And this is something that I really think about a lot. You know, John criticizes the media and, uh, because the daily show is a visual medium, you know, it's on television it was his focus on Fox disproportionate. You know, certainly he disagrees with their politics, but because he was able to use clips from Sean Hannity and Beck and Bill O'Reilly, you know, that made Fox a, a better target than using clips from the New York Times. You know, it's right. just not as fun or interesting on a TV show. But you're right. People forget that The Daily Show, MSNBC, Fox News all launched about the same time. Uh, one of the things I uncovered in the book that hadn't been written about in detail before was a couple of years ago, John uh, had done an interview at Fox with Bill O'Reilly right. and then got called into Roger Ailes's office. <laughs> and John describes that heated, you know, back and forth between two guys who are as, as smart and as different on the TV political spectrum as you could ever come up with. Yeah. He didn't sexually harass John, did he? No. Uh, <laughs> uh, though John describes, you know, walking into Ailes's office and Ailes saying uh, some naming John's children by first name oh, wow. in a weirdly Creepy. intimate, kind of intimidating manner, like. <laughs> Uh, those are nice kids you got there, you know, uh, it'd be a shame if anything happened to them. Yeah. Yeah. Like a mob. I mean, that's tactic. not what he said, Jeez. but it was the, the, certainly the, the tone of what he was saying. <laughs> like I said, it was kind of this unique moment as news was becoming entertainment. And several people say this in the book, the daily show became the one show that was taking on serious issues and calling out bullshit. Unlike the mainstream news. Yeah, I talked to a, a producer named Kahani Cooperman, whose husband worked at CBS News um, for a bunch of years, you know, who says almost exactly that, that, you know, when The Daily Show started, they were the joke and the news was the serious player and, and it had basically flipped by the end of John's tenure. But in addition to making fun of the media, he really was trying to get them to do better. And he was trying to hold them to a higher standard uh, that didn't come across always. And I mean, but that's really what he wanted. It also reminds me of something that Steve Bodo, who uh, started out as a staff writer, became head writer, is now an executive producer with Trevor Noah. He, Steve Bodo, joined the show in 2003 and he was on the verge of getting fired. It wasn't going very well for him. And then the Iraq war started. And as Steve described it, 
you know, he had a lot of ideas for, for segments related to the Iraq war and the Iraq war was the best thing to happen to his career. And as Steve puts it, you know, that was kind of how it worked at the daily show. Things were bad for the world, but good for the daily show. <laughs> Why did presidential candidates want to go on the daily show? What did they get out of that? Well, you know, on the one level, it's purely transactional that the Daily Show had a younger, more educated audience, particularly a younger male audience that politicians have trouble reaching in in other venues. So, you know, they thought by going on the Daily Show, you know, just as years ago, Bill Clinton had gone on Arsenio Hall, they were reaching right. a different uh, somewhat hipper audience. They also, you know, uh, took it as flattery, you know, that John, you know, being sort of the cool kid on TV would have them. Um, and it extended even to people like Chris Wallace at Fox News, who, you know, told me that his own kids never thought Chris Wallace uh, was a bigger deal than when Wallace went on The Daily Show. <laughs> John never disguised his politics. He was visibly thrilled when Obama got elected in 08. Right. But he didn't shy away from calling out the Obama administration when the president went back on promises or contradicted himself. Were Obama or any in his administration ever like, hey, I thought we were cool. <laughs> I thought John yeah. was one of us. Yeah, I mean, not that they would call up and yell at him exactly, but is, I've got an interview in the book with David Axelrod, who was Obama's chief campaign strategist and then White House strategist, uh, who had sort of a testy interview with John on The Daily Show. And the way Axelrod put it to me was, you know, they're sitting there in the White House trying to get things done, like the health care. And, you know, a guy they thought was on their side is, is taking shots at them. And the way Axelrod put it was, you know, you think it's easy? Come over here and try it, funny boy. <laughs> uh, and, you know, John later uh, went to the White House twice and met with Obama, where Obama essentially lectured him on the same thing, you know, that. <laughs> you, John Stewart, are making people more cynical and you don't understand how hard it is to get this stuff done. Um, interestingly, the stuff that often went over worst with the studio audience was when John would make jokes about Obama or Hillary Clinton. You know, like, hey, wait a minute, it's funny until you're mocking somebody on our team. Yeah. Talk about the influence that The Daily Show had overseas and in terms of inspiring and encouraging people in other countries to use satire to expose injustice. Yeah, that, that's an uh, interesting aspect. You know, as The Daily Show evolved and as the United States and, you know, its politics got more entangled with the rest of the world, John, uh, you know, wasn't just seen on more screens, more computer screens in particular in China or the Middle East. But John made an effort to do more pieces about those places. And they, you know, the, the more amazing outgrowth of that was that in Egypt, there was a cardiac surgeon who was treating people in Tahrir Square 
during the the uprising during the protests who was a huge fan of the daily show you know saw it on the internet and decided okay being a doctor and helping people is fine but what i really want to do is make satire and he started making clips on youtube that picked up a huge following because they were mocking you know egypt's dictators at a at a crucial moment in that uh, society and Bassem Youssef then got his own show on Egyptian television and eventually things got really uncomfortable i mean he had a big audience he didn't shy away from criticizing either the muslim brotherhood or the military and they essentially drove him out of the country he tried to shut down his show did shut down his show and uh, Bassem Bossum ended up moving to L.A., um, but The Daily Show, you know, in China, people pass around clips uh, surreptitiously um, because, as one woman says, you know, it's it, the idea that you can uh, openly make jokes about politicians is something that they they really envy. Yeah. How did the Stephen Colbert evolve into a right-wing pundit on the show? <laughs> Somewhat by accident. Uh, he had spent, you know, three or four very successful years as uh, The Daily Show's uh, most famous correspondent. And he was kind of getting tired of it. And the, he and John realized that Stephen was popular enough that there had to be some kind of spin-off show for Stephen to do. And uh, they also, at The Daily Show, just had a mechanical problem where they needed these things called bumpers to move from the studio stuff to commercials. So they created these short pieces with Colbert, like 20, 30 seconds of him doing a Bill O'Reilly-like uh, right-wing pundit character selling a book. And out of that, they realized, hey, we're on to something. And they pitched the show to Comedy Central. Colbert was initially really reluctant that he could sustain that character for, you know, a half hour a night, four times a week. And it was John who showed him that because uh, Stephen himself is a very likable guy, even if the character could at times be unpleasant, Stephen's uh, core humanity and sense of humor would come through. And uh, that became the Colbert Report. At a certain point, John had decided that he was ready to move on. Um, he had sort of anointed the brilliant John Oliver as his handpicked successor. And then John Oliver went to HBO. What happened there? Yeah, that's a story that really had not been told until this book. John Stewart wanted to take time off and make a movie. And that got tangled up with his contract renewal negotiations and became quite contentious with Comedy Central. But it got uh, done and John went off to make the movie and put John Oliver behind the desk, knowing, John Stewart knowing, that he wasn't gonna come back and continue to do show for much longer and that this would essentially be an audition for John Oliver. And Oliver killed it. Oliver was tremendous. Um, but Comedy Central had failed to sign Oliver to a new contract. Uh, 
and Oliver's a big success as a replacement. He starts getting interest from other people. Uh, Comedy Central was unwilling to pay the money that John Oliver wanted, which was not astronomical by any means. And Comedy Central felt like, you know, they, not John Stewart, should be the ones in charge uh, of picking a new host, ultimately, because they're the network and that's how it should be. So off John Oliver went to HBO. What other names were considered for his replacement? Well, um, John Stewart, interestingly, you know, suggested folks like Wyatt Cenac, who'd been a part of the show for a long time. Yeah. He suggested Amy Schumer, who would have been tremendous. But for The Daily Show's purposes, Amy Schumer's career was taking off at exactly the <laughs> wrong moment. You know, she was, she was becoming a big success on her own. The network reached out to people like Louis C.K. and Chris Rock and Amy Poehler, who, you know, would have been fabulous, but it was never realistic that they were going to take the job. Um, interestingly, John had hired Trevor Noah as a correspondent, and he made two appearances um, prior to John deciding to leave the show. John had seen a clip of Trevor on, on Letterman's show, watched it for about 30 seconds and said, hey, that guy could do my job someday. And uh, actually, it turned out to be that. Yeah, and he was a surprising choice for a lot of people because he was apparently very well known internationally, but not very well known here in America. Exactly. And, you know, Trevor's terrifically funny, obviously a, a lot younger than John Comedy Central, you know, wanted to hold on to the youthful male audience in particular. And they liked the idea of creating a new star in America, you know, even though Trevor was pretty well known in other parts of the world, you know, they thought it would be exciting and interesting to create a next John Seward, so to speak. For all of these things that I didn't know about, these you know, behind the scenes, creative squabbles, union arguments and contract re renegotiations. As far as I could tell, it never really showed on camera. Yeah. Thank you for saying that. And, you know, it's interesting in 16 years, certainly you're going to have people who don't get along and smart, opinionated people are going to disagree. But by and large, you know, compared to a lot of other shows where there are blowout arguments and drugs and sex and all sorts of drama. The Daily Show was a pretty tame place to work over the years. I wish, you know, narratively I had uncovered more dirt, but um, <laughs> it more, more or less was a really happy environment. And that, you know, flowed from how John ran the place. Yeah, I think it really is a testament to what a professional he was to be able to do 160 shows like that every year and still hold it together despite all the stuff going on behind the scenes and to be able to work at that pace. What do you think John Stewart's proudest moment was on The Daily Show? Did he tell you? I think, you know, it sounds corny, but he was more proud of the day in, day out effort than anything else. You know, sometimes it flopped. Uh, and they moved on to the next one. But it's that professionalism, the, the creation of a machine that could make 22 hours of, of 
great comedy most nights uh, more than any moment it, it's the creating of that place that he's he's really proud of uh, have, have you talked to John much since the election? Yeah, quite a bit. Yeah. And, and you know, no, he doesn't regret not having <laughs> been on the air. Um, you know, the way he puts it. Is he it getting is, tired of that question, though? I mean, he's treated like no, he's the, the, the guy who no. passed on Gone with the Wind, you know? <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, he felt like he'd, he'd done it. He'd said his piece for 16 years, and he was burned out. And... Uh, there's no doubt he w was out of gas. Um, and the way he puts it is, you know, have you ever been on vacation? And, you know, did somebody say to you, oh, man, weren't you, didn't you really wish you were at work and not on vacation? He's like, no, <laughs> I'm enjoying being off the air. Yeah. Um, so as a civilian, yeah, the election pained him in a variety of ways, not simply because Trump won. He misses the people at the show. He has no desire to be on camera anymore. Um, certainly not, you know, four nights a week. And before we go, I want to give credit to some of the unsung heroes behind the scenes. Who were some of the staffers who were most responsible for The Daily Show becoming what it became? Uh, great question. Appreciate your asking it. There's a woman named uh, Jen Flans who started there in the late 90s, you know, as an intern, worked her way up through the ranks, you know, handling logistics for conventions, handling uh, props. You know, she helped uh, uh, glue together Gitmo, you know, the uh, Guantanamo correspondent, you know, uh, from a yeah. Elmo they found at a store and a beard from a Jewish wig shop. Um, you know, she's now an executive producer with, with, uh, Trevor Noah, you know, and one of the beauties of what John created was that he expected everybody to pitch jokes and ideas. Mm -hmm. So whether it was, you know, Jet Flans who on paper, you know, was a producer in charge of logistics, you know, she was throwing in jokes. Uh, Joe Miller, a woman who's now running Sam B's show, was a staff writer. Uh, a guy named Elliot Kalin, who started as an intern, then was a segment producer. Uh, a guy named Rory Albanese, who helped create the video montage style that mm -hmm. The Daily Show pioneered yeah. and later went on to be executive producer. And, and many of these people came from real news, too. That's what was interesting. Several years yeah. into it, they started actually hiring people from ABC News and other exactly. networks. Yeah. yeah, a guy named Jim Margolis, who uh, had been working at 60 Minutes, you know, a producer for yeah. a dream job, you know, journalistic elite show. Yeah. He, you know, always loved comedy, though, and got hired by The Daily Show went to tell Don Hewitt, the legendary 60 Minutes producer, that he was going to The Daily Show. And Hewitt said, uh, great, what show is that exactly? <laughs> uh, but Margolis, yeah, ha had a major hand in making the field pieces more r rigorous, both in, in style and substance, you know, really adapting that 60 Minutes form to uh, some goofy stuff. Yeah. 
Well, the book is such an interesting and funny read. It's called The Daily Show, an oral history as told by John Stewart, the correspondents, staff, and guests. Chris Smith, thanks so much for coming on to talk to me about it. Ben, thank you so much for having me. Thanks once more to Chris Smith for coming on the podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, then you can order his book, The Daily Show, An Oral History as Told by John Stewart, The Correspondents, Staff, and Guests on Amazon. Or you can download the audio version for free through that special trial offer just for our listeners at audibletrial.com slash kickassnews. For more information, visit dailyshowthebook.com. Follow Chris Smith on Twitter at at Chris Smith NYMAG. That's N-Y-M-A-G. And read more of his work in New York Magazine or at nymag.com. And of course, you can still catch The Daily Show four nights a week on Comedy Central. For more information and bonus content, visit Comedy Central's website at cc.com. Don't forget to take our listener survey so we can keep the show free and find advertisers who are best matched to you, our listeners. Just take five minutes to go to podsurvey.com slash kick and take the survey. And when you're done, be sure to register for that $100 Amazon gift card giveaway. And once again, before you start your Amazon shopping this Christmas, visit the sponsor page on our website at kickassnews.com and copy our Amazon link into your web browser first. Then Amazon will kick us a little coin for every order you make this season. Be sure to subscribe to Kickass News on iTunes and leave us a review while you're there. You can visit Kickass News on Facebook or follow us on Twitter at, at @kapolitics. And please be sure to recommend Kickass News to your friends on your social media. And if you really want to help out, then donate to our GoFundMe campaign at gofundme.com slash kickassnews. As always, I welcome your comments, questions, and suggestions at comments at kickassnews.com. For now, though, I'm Ben Mathis, and thanks for listening to Kickass News. Kickass News is a trademark of Mathis Entertainment, Inc.